You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. to introduce uh, Professor Buckley. We've been friends since, I don't it's, it make us seem too old if I tell you how Let's just say it was the Soviet <laughs> era. And, uh, <laughs> it was the Soviet era. I think we uh, met in a um, dingy hotel room, someone else's hotel room, where we were so delighted because I was living in the dorms at MGU and it was so glamorous to be in a hotel room. And uh, there was Cindy, and it was, you know, times change. Um, <laughs> But uh, we could spend the whole time we have just talking about all of her accomplishments. Uh, right now, she's uh, teaching at a professor of sociology at the University of Illinois. Before that, she spent many years in the sociology department at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, she did all of her education at the University of Michigan, which we'll try not to hold against her, right? <laughs> and uh, she has, uh, you know, just a very, very long list of publications and uh, has been incredibly successful in. Uh, and innovative in terms of the grants that she has won. She's one of very few people to have two grants from this uh, so-called Minerva initiative that the Department of Defense does. And even though it's defense, it doesn't really have anything to do with guns. Uh, They're just trying to learn more about these regions. Um, And the one that she's working on now deals with uh, state capacity in uh, Ukraine, Georgia, and Estonia. I think countries where Russia is a little bit, is sort of rattling the cage, right? Is expansionistic. Um, yeah, expansionistic, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think, you know, a, a among people who work in this uh, uh, area of the world, most of us are one country people, and Cindy is one of the few who I think has worked in almost all of the different countries. Maybe there's one or two that she hasn't gone to. Um, often as a consultant, uh, dealing with various kinds of health issues, or uh, and she's been very creative in terms of combining what she learns on those consultancies with her academic work. Um, so please join me in welcoming her uh, for this wonderful uh, presentation. I'm going to, with your permission, mm-hmm. s- tweak things just a little bit. Instead of a lecture, let's think about this as a discussion. I think um, it'll be a little bit more fun, and we're going to talk about sex for the next hour. And <laughs> oftentimes people want to say stuff, so feel free to jump on in. Um, this is um, kind of... Um, One of those projects, I'm looking at it, all these young faces, one of these projects you get after it's like, wow, it's been a couple of decades that I've been working on this topic. And as Kathy was so kind to say, um, I've had the opportunity, because I am a trained demographer, to do a lot of work on reproductive health programs and policies across Central Asia, across most um, of the, the republics of the, the former Soviet Union, as well as a little bit of work in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And um, now when I'm looking back, uh, several ideas come to my mind, like, what was I thinking? But I, other ideas come to mind, which really, I think, bear um, comment at this point in time. This is not a stage in the game when we're thinking like, wow, political successes, they're everywhere. Right? Um, and particularly in Central Asia. Um, this, in part, has a little bit of data in it from a talk I gave recently at the uh, State Department Institute with these new um, uh, diplomats getting ready to go out. And I got to stand up and say, 
I am the only woman in Washington, D.C. who's going to say, I've got good news about the government and women. <laughs> um, I thought it was hysterical. They just looked at me like, <laughs> but um, hopefully um, we'll, we'll get to um, a bit more detail about issues of success and near success, but also to think about this in the framework of analyzing critically the cases of Central Asia within general demographic and public health ideas about what should happen when reproductive health improves and how we measure improvement in reproductive health. So um, let's get going and again, feel free to, to, to chime in as you wish. Um, the big goal here is to gain, um, to kind of highlight an appreciation of political demography, particularly within Central Asia. This is part of a longer book manuscript that talks about all sorts of demographic things like mortality, migration, um, population aging, and health in Central Asia. And I think it's something to really consider. Demography now, it's almost as if we've discovered in, the, in mass media that demography is now important. But populations are changing, and they are changing rapidly. And it is not just the aging of the American population or the increasing diversity of the American population, which tends to, I would argue, set some people rather apoplectic. <laughs> On the other hand, it also means that lots of other countries, because of shifts in age structure, because of shifts in ethnic and linguistic composition, face unique and important challenges to societal stability as well as political stability. You can think about um, the uh, ink that has been spilled about the youth bulge as a major factor in um, political change in the Middle East. We can think about concerns about population aging in countries like Japan or below replacement fertility in countries like South Korea. Central Asia, in, 19, in 1991, the countries of the former Soviet Union, and to a large extent, huge impacts on Afghanistan and Pakistan, entered a new era of their political history. And the changes in population between 1991 and the current period have been dramatic, and I would even argue that in terms of reproductive health, and specifically in terms of fam family planning, they've been fairly cataclysmic in a positive sense. And so we need to really think back and think about what does this mean for these countries going forward? How is it going to influence their composition, their age structure, and their overall health profile? So I'm gonna talk a little bit about improvements of, on reproductive health across the region. For those, um, uh, for our younger scholars in the, the audience, I'm gonna really give you a push to think about employing some of the incredible data that are available for the seven countries that I'm going to be discussing. These are from the Demographic and Health Surveys, as well as the um, Micro-Indicator Cluster Surveys from UNICEF. We're going to talk about the unevenness of reproductive health improvements across region, age, gender, ethnic, and linguistic groups a little bit. And we're going to examine how inequities in health improvements minimize the broader impacts of what theory tells us should be happening when contraceptive use becomes much more acceptable and much more common. There's a whole litany of things that should happen, both demographically and attitudinally within a society, and like most theories, some of it works and some of it doesn't. So we'll think about how we can pull the Central Asian examples in to really refine and improve existing theories about how we shift to plan 
reproduction. So what is Central Asia is the question um, many of us who teach any courses on Central Asia always have to start with. I realize that I'm preaching to the choir here, so you've got it, and that's great. But what is Central Asia? How do you define Central Asia? So I'm stuck. I could go with the post-Soviet region, and that would be easy. Um, there's lots of maps for that, right? Even though, actually, the Soviet definition doesn't include Kazakhstan, and Kazakhstan's an amazingly important case, so I want to pull that in. So I don't really want to go with the Soviet definition. Um, the common modern definition pulls Kazakhstan in. The UNESCO, because you know the UN is going to do the imperial land grab, UNESCO pulls in everything, right? So then it's Mongolia. So I spent a lot of time thinking about if I'm going to write about Central Asia, what do I mean by Central Asia in terms of demographic space? And it seemed somewhat capricious to say a country like Afghanistan, where there are a lot of linguistic Tajiks, Uzbeks, right, living right there, where I remember sitting, and I'm sure you've been in the same guest house, right, in the Palmyres, um, in Tajikistan, where you look over into Afghanistan, saying, oh no, that river is it, Afghanistan is out. Seems like Afghanistan actually, even though their fertility doesn't go as low as some of the um, post-Soviet Central Asian countries, really needs to be included in this demographic transition that takes place in Central Asia. And then you get on this slippery slope, right? So adding countries in is kind of like potato chips. You can't just take one, right? <laughs> um, if you bring in Afghanistan, what about Pakistan? Waziristan really is a no man's land. There isn't a clear demarcation of border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Pakistan also has had a rapid and marked uh, increase in contraceptive use and a decline in fertility, so now we've got seven. So I'm going to talk about those seven, and I'm going to pull in different examples, both qualitative and quantitative, throughout this talk to, to just raise some issues about reproductive health. That's my definition of Central Asia, and I'm sticking to it. Um, I can't go anymore because I didn't have room on the first slide for more than seven flags. So that's when I know my index has been validated. Okay, <laughs> so we're looking at Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the five countries of the former Soviet Union. And we all know what they mean, right? Camels in the rural areas, beautiful, unbelievable architectural treasures. But it's also an amazing land of contrasts. And if there's one word to kind of sum up for, for a lot of us, I think, in this room who have traveled in and worked in this region, it's the unevenness of these countries, right? So Ashgabat, um, in the center, when you stay at the, the nice hotel and you're in the government buildings, is really quite modern and, and pretty nice, and, and you can get a decent cappuccino pretty much 24-7, right? An hour and a half ride, you can go to Merv, and it's a little different, right? So over here, there's an organic grocery store that's open 24 hours a day. Over here, this is, of course, the weekly market that's open for about six hours every Sunday. So I think you need to do a little bit more dance planning, right? So clearly some unevenness. Pakistan, even more so. Islamabad really is a large cosmopolitan area, but frit with traffic jams unbelievable air pollution, 
everything that would make you think you were in LA, right? Well, except for the taco trucks. <laughs> Islamabad, thoroughly modern city, again, two and a half hours ride, very bumpy ride. Um, you get to Karimabad, and this is down, this whole thing is downtown Karimabad. Um, same country, same folks. They're within striking distance of one another. People from Merv will visit Askabad sometimes. People from Karimabad will go to Islamabad sometimes. Interestingly enough, people in Islamabad very rarely hoof it on out to the rural areas. But it's this huge land of unevenness in a way in which we really need to think about the differences between rural and urban, the differences between capital cities and peripheral regions. In this land of contrast, in these very, very diverse seven countries, something crazy is going on. So this is just the best estimates from the WHO from 1970 to the estimates from the US Census Department in 2018 of the total fertility rate in each of these seven countries. And there's a clear pattern of unbelievable decline. The smallest decline takes place in Kazakhstan, and much of this has to do with the fact that in 1970, fertility among ethnic Russians in Kazakhstan was quite low, so the average was a little depressed. But what's interesting is even in Afghanistan, which I think we can all agree has not had a great run of it in this time period, the total fertility rate, which is an estimate that demographers use that basically says, given the current age-specific fertility rates, if a woman was to live through ages 15 to 45, the reproductive ages, experiencing that risk of fertility, on average, how many children would she produce? So it's what we call a hypothetical cohort measure, right? It's not a real cohort because, of course, rates change as you age, but um, I find that my students in Dem Tech are very reluctant to say, you know, I'll get my homework done in 45 years, we'll wait for the real cohort experience and see what happens, which is good, because I'm not great at it. Um, <laughs> but a hypothetical cohort measure shows you very clearly that you have unbelievably rapid declines in the total fertility rate. From in Tajikistan, where you have an average family size of six children, Per woman, it falls down to just over two and a half. Perhaps some of you have siblings that make you remind, remind you of that half child. Right? <laughs> um, in Uzbekistan, and this is the interesting case, 5.64 is the total fertility rate according to Soviet statisticians in the 1970s, and that's been verified by the World Health Organization. In 2018, Uzbekistan now is in below replacement fertility. On average, every woman is generating 1.74 children. So not only is it below replacement fertility, it's pretty far below. Usually, replacement fertility is kind of crudely estimated at 2.1, right? You want, don't want to have just two because you got to have a little um, uh, backup there for, for accidents and mortality, bungee jumping, and um, things that undergraduates do when they drink too much beer. But in general, what we see is that even Turkmenistan is down to slightly below replacement. 
right? Tajikistan is just above, Pakistan even, is just above replacement fertility. This is an amazing change in family size, right? To me, it makes a lot of sense because I am one of nine children. Spoiler alert, none of my siblings have nine kids. <laughs> right? But this is a huge change in the span of about two generations. So how did it happen? What leads to declines in total fertility rate? The standard approach that demographers like to use is the cap approach. And this used to be funnier when everybody used cervical caps because it was like a pun. But you know, demographers are, you know, we are the nerds of the social sciences, so we'll, we'll slide that stuff in. Um, what leads to declines? Knowledge. You've got to know that you can control your fertility, right? You've got to have lower and lower per percentages of your population answering the question, how many children would you like, with the response, as many as God will give. Um, access. So you've got to know about contraceptives, and you've got to be able to, access, to get access to them, right? Where do you go? Who can help you find them? And then you have to have practice, right? And this is a higher level of knowledge because you have to utilize contraceptive methods effectively. But more um, importantly, you have to have continuous access to contraceptives, right? It's not going to do you good to have a supply of birth control pills every other month or you know, a couple of condoms for the year. You've got to be able to practice consistently and in accordance with the most effective utilization of contraception. In addition to this kind of cap model, knowledge, access, and practice, we've got several theories that really help us think about how people make this change from, I'm gonna have eight kids just like mom, to, yeah, you know, one and done, <laughs> or maybe, you know, two, that's okay. One is ideational change, and this is linked in with work from Arlen Thornton, and I got a product, he's from Michigan, so. Um, a demographer at, at that other school in Ann Arbor um, that really talks about ideational change. And it is the idea that people actually change their idea of what family means from extended large families to smaller nuclear families. Not surprisingly, even though Thornton does most of his work in Nepal, a lot of this has to do with moving away from large rural settlements where you're around a lot of neighbors into cozy urban apartments where really you don't want all your cousins coming to stay, <laughs> right? And so ideational change plays a big role in this, this development. A competing hypothesis for Central Asia is that it's economic hardship. And I get this a lot from um, men, mostly, no offense gentlemen, in um, Central Asia that say, no, 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 people want to have big families, but now it's just too expensive. I really have done a lot of focus groups and interviews across these seven countries, and I've never gotten that from a woman. That it's like, no, no, it's only because they're too costly. I'd love to have 14. Um, <laughs> but maybe there's a respondent up there. I hope I can track her down. And then lastly, changing ideas about women, right? So the UN, just uh, um, less than two weeks ago, came out with a really interesting study talking about how when women do better, fertility rates go down. And the idea 
is that if we want fertility rates to go down in regions where they are very, very high, the best option we have is to increase women's status, right? Um, if we think protecting reproductive health rights is tough in the United States, imagine going into some of these countries which tend to be tend towards the more patriarchal, although in Trump's America I have a hard time using the term more patriarchal, but I'll just say <laughs> patriarchal. <laughs> and saying it'd be great to get your fertility rate down just to increase the status of women. Right? It's a tough one. That's a really big question to beg. And it's particularly interesting because most of demographic theory states that actually everybody wants to control their fertility, and if you let them control their fertility, then, not as a precursor, but as an effect, women's status go up. If women don't have children immediately, they can finish higher education. If women can space their children, they are less likely to get sick. So are their children. If women can stop childbearing, they can concentrate on public engagement or economic engagement. They can also use the quality quantity argument, right? And I'm touchy on this because I told you I'm one of nine. But the idea is the fewer children you have, the more resources you pour into them. Yeah, probably should have told you that before you showed up for a talk by me, huh? <laughs> I hate to tell you, I was number eight. <laughs> okay. So we have this big change. We have a huge cataclysmic change in terms of fertility rates. And how do we start examining this? There has been a multitude of really important work, much of it anthropological, much of it ethnographic, on the status of women, on health, on family life in Central Asia. There has been less detailed quantitative analyses of health women's status, reproductive health in particular, but also attitudes about family. And it's a conundrum primarily because there is data, data everywhere. So two big sources of data for those of you who might be interested in gender relations, in family size, in family planning, in health, in information about stunting and wasting, information about um, uh, marriage patterns, etc. There are two big um, groups that collect large-scale national surveys on this, um, the demographic and health surveys, which is funded by USAID that goes in and does large-scale national surveys, always in conjunction with the local Ministry of Health. And you can see, I've just put the dates up, the years up for the DHSs in all seven countries. There's lots of them. There is a second group that is very similar in questionnaire design. You know, you can't make life too easy for graduate students, so there are quite, you know, aggregating differences, so it doesn't smush together as easily as we would like. But you can create longitudinal data by including the UNICEF microindicator cluster surveys. These are done by UNICEF, typically with the Ministry of Health and the Center for National Statistics in each one of the seven countries. And we've got some new, um, Mix coming online. We've got mix going into the field in, um, I think, seven months in Uzbekistan. Um, so there is not only a repository of data going back to the early 1990s, but there's continuing um, longitudinal insights that can be gained. 
in addition to those two large-scale, enormous national surveys, which are publicly available. You have to register on the website, but you can download them. You can download them in SAS, you can download them in SATA and SPSS. You can even, on both websites, do some calculations on the website. So you don't have to be a statistics um, aficionado to pull out some data. In addition, we have the Afghan survey from the Asia Foundation. Um, this is, surprise, surprise, not a representative sample, which is something that's really hard to do in a country that's been torn apart by um, civil conflict for several decades. Um, but it does have a very large sample size that you can develop weighting factors for, but you can also do regional comparisons with the Afghan survey. That, that is from the Asia Foundation. Again, all you have to do is register to access the data. The National Research Center for Maternal and Child Health in Kazakhstan has made available um, to registered researchers uh, a really new and exciting repository of linked um, birth records and then follow-up health records for children and, and mothers. And that has a lot of promise. Now that's only come online in the last two months, so I'm not gonna have a lot of data uh, to talk about from that, but it's pretty exciting. Um, the Reproductive Health Alliance of Kyrgyzstan is a filial of the International Planned Parenthood Association, and it's hidden away inside a courtyard in Bishkek, not too far from the center of the city, but an amazing group of men and women who are doing tremendous work in terms of providing access to reproductive health and um, sexual health information particularly to the commercial sex worker population in Kyrgyzstan, but also they just started a new focus on female migrants leaving Kyrgyzstan to make sure that women are aware and perhaps um, uh, introduced and provided with contraceptives before they leave the country. Um, UNFPA has also done spot surveys in Pakistan. I wanna say that the mix surveys are a little hard to use for Pakistan because they do different ones for, for, for different population groups. You have to merge them together, but it's still well worthwhile. The Ministry of Health in Tajikistan, um, they say <laughs> that in November, they're going to be doing a big national survey on reproductive health, and we'll see what happens. Um, um, you know, keep your fingers crossed. Um, and then lastly, Turkmenistan doesn't have any other data available for it. That should surprise no one. But UNFPA has also done a large number of qualitative um, investigations in Uzbekistan. And if you get in touch with folks at UNFPA, you can go to their website, download the uh, um, final report, and simply ask. And they have translated, they have available in Russian, Uzbek, Tajik, and English transcripts of focus groups um, that are woefully underanalyzed. So for you young whippersnappers who are looking for um, uh, a quick project, or for those of you who are teaching courses where you might want to have some original data like this, all sorts of questions about sex, okay? All right, so tons of data. Um, in addition to the, this data, as Kathy was so kind to mention, I have been engaged in working with the demographic and health surveys, as well as the mixed surveys, as well as UNA, UNAIDS and UNFPA in this region, on and off, uh, uh, off and on. 
I got worried when Kathy said I've been to all the republics I have. It's not because like I go and they don't invite me back, so I have to go to another one. But <laughs> maybe it is. I'm not sure. At any rate, um, I've been visiting these same sets of seven countries, um, less so Afghanistan and Pakistan, but I've been there from the 90s <laughs> as a young child until today, right? And so in addition to those surveys, I've also got a repository of interview notes, focus group transcripts, interview transcripts, and observational data from working in the area of reproductive health and women's rights in Central Asia. And I can tell you, things are getting better, right? Um, you gotta have an interval, right? Don't have births for two years, right? When I got married in 1993, and I don't raise your hand if you weren't alive then, because I don't really wanna know. Um, when I got married in 1993, there were no such requirements. You didn't have to space, you didn't have to stop, you didn't have to limit the number of kids you had. I bore my children one after another. This is the point in the interview where I was just like, Mom! Um, <laughs> that time I didn't think about the children, I thought about myself, and I was so proud of her for, for being honest about this. I was badly suffering. And indeed, um, this is a woman who, who has five children who made it into adulthood. What she, what's not in that line is the four that she lost before age five, right? Because she was just bearing ch children one after another. That's not the case anymore, and that's not the case in any of these seven countries. Awareness of family planning is increasing, and that is fabulous. If I take the regional averages and bring them together, controlling for population size, for the five countries in the former Soviet Union, in the 1990s, and this is usually clustered around 95, but it runs from 93 to 96, 36% of women over um, 15 had ever heard of family planning. And again, I encourage you when you're teaching undergraduates to stress that hearing about family planning is not an effective contraceptive measure, right? This is a pretty low level awareness indicator. One out of three. This is not a great situation. By the 2010s, and again, this is clustered around 2014, 86% of all women over 15 had heard of family planning. This is an amazing shift. To no small extent, this is a reflection of your tax dollars hard at work. Between 1993 and 2014, USAID publications note a total of $310 million in U.S. funds going to the five countries of former Soviet Union for family planning purposes. That's like, what, uh, half a plane? I'm not sure. I think that's like five minutes of the fireworks show on July 4th, right? <laughs> but to a large extent, it was pretty effective, right? Um, the Swiss also participated, the Norwegians participated, the British Welcome Trust participated, but the vast majority of external funds for family planning programs came from USAID and the US government. And there was also outreach in each of the seven countries. And this is what I found amazing. It happens at different times, but at some point, each, the governments of each of these countries added interesting uh, programs to their public health campaign. 
each of them at different times between 1999 and 2010 hired, I like to call them nurse udarniki, shop workers, who would go out and visit women in their homes, both in the cities and in rural areas, to talk to them about their health, to weigh the baby, to check to make sure the baby was okay, but also to talk to them about the importance of spacing. Utilizing contraceptives after a birth to put about two years on average between childbearing. This is borne out by empirical data that particularly in developing countries, this has been shown to dramatically decrease maternal anemia, this also dramatically decreases child mortality, right? And again, if you're taking a break between kids, you're probably not gonna end up with nine at the end, right? So spacing became really important. And in Kyrgyzstan, some focus groups in 2017, and this was out um, just south of Issaquul, um, they were, women were talking about how great this was, right? That the medical staff comes to them at home um, they talk about the vi vaccinations, right? They talk about contraceptives, they bring the contraceptives to women. Now, this doesn't mean 100% of women in these seven countries are getting this kind of treatment. My estimates from the records that I found from the ministries of health indicate that in Afghanistan, you're only talking about 15% of women getting this kind of coverage. In Tajikistan, it's a little better. It's about 40% of women in the first year after birth. In Kazakhstan, it's about 32%. And in Kyrgyzstan, it's a little bit higher. It's right around 35%, right? Also, a pretty big country and pretty, you know, not so easy to get around. Um, mountains are, are tough for contraception. Um, once a woman had to protect herself the best she could, now she can plan how many children she will have. This was an amazingly effective and um, fairly cheap modification in the public health system. While it didn't cover all women, I think it can be um, instrumental in helping us to understand that during this time of change, during this time of economic crisis, during this time of many colored revolutions and all sorts of political difficulties, there were some programs that showed some promise, and they were programs that had impact. But it didn't impact everybody. So any of you who have, have gone to family planning clinics or, or researched or worked on women's issues in Central Asia, um, especially for Westerners coming from outside, there's, there's something that took me a long time to get used to. And that was the fact that every time I went in for UNFPA, I was sent to the birthing hospital. Okay. And that's because that's where all the family planning clinics are. Pardon? <laughs> right. Well, you know, I was, as Kathy mentioned, I was in Texas for almost two decades, like, that's closing the barn door after the cow done got out, right? Um, yeah, that seems a little bizarre. Why do you think they're in the birthing hospitals? Postpartum family planning, but also it was the idea that, you know what, until you prove your fecundity, 
until you show your worth as a daughter-in-law, as a wife, you're not supposed to know about contraception. We're not really interested in telling youth that aren't married about family planning. We're only interested in catching you after you've had that first child. And so the family planning clinics are in the birthing hospitals. I mean, is that an articulated, explicitly articulated policy rationale, or, or is that um, your interpretation of this? Uh, I will say that speaking with the director of Radom 3 in Bukhara, he simply said, our, this is Uzbekistan. All our girls are virgins until they get married, so why do they need contraception? And then, and of course, I have to smile and nod, like, oh. <laughs> um, and then, as a follow-up, this is the best part, um, in a masterful turn of um, gender <coughs> stereotyping, said, well, you know, it's not, it's not us, it's not the Ministry of Health, it's the mother-in-laws. The mother-in-laws want grandchildren right away, and if a woman can't have grandchildren, then you need to get another wife for your son. And so, in essence, what he was saying is, of course, none of our girls would ever consider becoming sexually active before they got married, so that's just, you know, that's just silly, we wouldn't waste resources. But then the only reason why they have the kids right away is, you know, because women force them to. I mean, I was just thinking that, well, I mean, it could be that, you know, if you want to find a place where you're going to have a lot of contact with a lot of women of childbearing age in these countries, it's going to be the Radom. And where yeah. else could you, I think where else like, do the women come? I right. mean, you could just put up a I've a got a slide to come that I'll show you, but I think you're absolutely right, Ted. There's a lot, we should have family planning clinics in the birthing hospitals. I love the fact that they are you know, trying, even if it's only covering a few percentage of women, they're sending health professionals out into homes to speak with women one-on-one. -on -one. This is an excellent, wonderful idea. And it's cost-effective. Babies are healthier, women are healthier. This is a great investment. It's a very, very smart policy, and I think they deserve credit for at least starting these policies. Adnaka. <laughs> um, um, maybe it's not enough. And here's why I think it's not enough. Okay, remember I told you how knowledge went way, way up? Didn't go way, way up for everybody. There's some people where it stays fairly modest, particularly women 15 to 19, where in Tajikistan, and this is the 2012 DHS, by this point in time, you know, almost all married women in Tajikistan, everybody who'd already had a child had heard about family planning because they were right there in the birthing hospital, right? But if you're 15 to 19, particularly if you had no children, right? You didn't know. Even those 20 to 24, less than three out of four had ever heard of family right? Or at least that's what they report. It's not until you're 25 to almost 30 that we get three quarters of women saying, yeah, I've heard of it. And again, that's a pretty low bar to jump over. Um, not an effective contraceptive method. The women who know are the women who have already had children, right? And it's good. They need to know. That's awesome. But I would argue these women it probably could do some I do with a little bit of attention as well. 
and it's particularly youth that seem to be held back from reproductive health knowledge. And much of this has to do with stereotypes not unlike those harbored by the director of Radom number three <laughs> in Bukhara. In my Kazakh focus group in 2017, in our region, if a single woman would like to learn something about the methods of contraception, <sighs> that's not the girl you want to marry your son, right? Something's wrong with her. She slept with someone, gotten pregnant, or some such thing, right? So the idea that a young woman would go forward to try and find out information about family planning or go into the birthing hospital. So my um, research assistants in Tajikistan always waited downstairs for me, and I always had a lot of flowers, because of course there's tons of flower kiosks around every birthing hospital, but the girls would never come in with me because they're just like, oh, you know, we can't go in. People will think badly of me, and I thought, oh, okay, well, you know. So, but then they would always buy me flowers when I got out, and it's like, I didn't have a baby. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> but at any rate, attitudes remain problematic, right? So you still have this stigmatization of young women. In Kazakhstan, in Kyrgyzstan in 2017, in focus groups with both, that were both ethnically mixed and um, 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 ethnically homogeneous, with the titular, focusing on the titular ethnicity and language, what we found was that there was a strong attitudinal stigma and that indeed parents, older sisters, would really advise them against ever going to a doctor to get family planning information or going into the Radomi to get information about from the, these um, internationally supported family planning kiosks that are in all the hospitals. And it's not surprising. This is a strong, strong stigma. In Afghanistan and Pakistan, what I found, and I, Pakistan was just two trips, Afghanistan was just two trips, so I really am no expert on those two fascinating and, and wonderful countries. But in both cases, it didn't really matter who you asked, you just don't ask this question. You can't even, no, the, you can't possibly understand your, or what a stupid question is the, the modal response, but you can't ask that question as a Westerner. And much of that has to do in, in indirect information from observing in clinics, but also observing um, town hall meetings about education for young women, particularly in Afghanistan. This puts women at high risk. So really, it's extraordinarily risky for unmarried women to try and pursue information about family planning. What this means is that you have very few people delaying that first birth. You, um, Uzbekistan is my favorite <laughs> for an interesting um, approach to access. So Ted, you asked if there were family planning kiosks outside the birth home. There are. Guess where they are? The Mahalas. Okay. Mahalas, neighborhood associations, these are really a cornerstone of Uzbek civil society in some ways, right? They have all sorts of responsibilities, whether it be trash pickup or maintaining house, you know, dvors and, and such in cities across Uzbekistan. Anybody, I'm sorry, I'm a really bad photographer. Anybody see something generalizable about this mahala? It looks like the U.S. Senate. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's all men. 
Um, you can't see because, again, I, um, they all wanted their portraits individually, and I couldn't get them to pose as a group. So I got the back of everybody's head, so please excuse me. But um, they're not young, okay? <laughs> right? These are Urosli. Um, these are, are men primarily over 45, most of the, many of them over 60. Lots of them are retired. And they are the neighbor, they were the ones that got elected to the neighborhood council. Some Mahalans, particularly in Tashkent right now, have gotten much more diverse, and that's awesome and great. And women are doing a wonderful job. But when you get out into some of the smaller cities, and this was taken um, several years ago, this was in um, 2012, it was fairly male. But UNFPA was like, you can't have them just at the birth hospitals, you gotta distribute so there's wider access. And they said, sure, we'll give the family planning brochures and contraceptives to the Mahala, and girls can come and ask them. <laughs> um, it didn't work very well, right? Um, so, you know, young families should, should give birth as soon as possible. They don't need information on contraceptives. None of the mothers or mother-in-laws, especially the husbands, will allow a young bride to use contraception, right? So again, this idea that you get rapid first births. Now there are a lot of reasons why having early first births could be good. Grandparents are younger, women are healthier, there's less implicability. There's nothing wrong with having children right away except social science investigations showed that oftentimes having children early on in a marriage leads to higher rates of marital instability. Um, for women, having children at very young ages also is highly correlated with the cessation of education and therefore curtails economic opportunity. And so there, you know, it's a double-edged sword, but I will say, and forgive me gentlemen, I'm not talking to you right now, but ladies, who amongst us would knock on the door of this austere group who you see every day in your apartment building and say, you know, I, um, I heard you have IUDs. I'd like one, please. <laughs> right? Nobody's going to say that. And so, um, Ted, bless your heart for that question. Um, they, did, they do have other access routes. Yay. <laughs> um, in this case, it's not perhaps ideal. And you really want to keep the young virtuous, right? So it's very similar. Stop me if you've heard this before, I think, from your former governor. But if you talk to teenagers about sex, they run right out and do it, which is weird because I talk to my students every time about doing the reading, and they never do it. <laughs> but, but there's another outcome of keeping the young virtuous. Because after the Cairo Conference on International Health, we talk about reproductive health as family planning plus information on sexual health, right? And if you are prevented from accessing family planning, you are also prevented from accessing information on sexual health. And that includes all sorts of sexually transmitted infections as well as HIV. HIV knowledge among women under 30 Right? So these are not just youngsters. These are women 15 to 30 in Tajikistan, and this is weighted data. 
those who have had children know that you can transfer HIV through pregnancy. They, you know, 90%, right? They also know that consistent condom use hinders HIV. Over 70%, this is great, right? But look at what happens to women who have yet to have children. They are statistically, each one of these is statistically significant, except this one, everybody thinks a healthy person can have AIDS. I'm not quite sure where that came from, but that's about 48% and that's even. Everything else, women who have yet to have children are statistically significantly less informed on core issues of sexual health than women who have already had children. And causality is a hard thing to, to, to identify, but this is strongly associated, in my mind, unquestionably, with the placement of these family clinic clinics in the birthing hospitals. And not surprisingly, when we look at the Turkmen um, microindicator cluster survey, um, the Turkmen can be a little iffy, so it's hard to get this data from, from UNICEF, but if you, if you email me, I'll give you the, the phone number of the, the person in Turkmenistan to call. Um, what I did here is I took everybody who got married, who's been married at least 36 months, so three years. Within the first three years, who had kids? Almost everybody, right? Everybody reports having a first birth in the first three years. What I did is I took women, and here I was a little bit censored on, on this side, so I took people 25 and older, and I said, okay, of those who get married, how many of you had your first birth in the, within the first year? How many of them you had them within the first um, or the second 12 months and the third 12 months, right? And then here, because we didn't have any married women who hadn't reported, we only had uh, 15 cases, and I just dropped them, who reported that they hadn't had a, a birth. It didn't need to be a successful birth. It could have been a stillbirth. Um, what we find is that amongst younger cohorts, so 20 to 29, in Turkmenistan, more of them, a higher percentage of them, are having that first birth in the first year of marriage, right? So it's almost not that you're continuing an early first birth um, uh, practice, but actually more women are choosing to have that first birth within the first 12 months of marriage. Interestingly enough, fewer are waiting to the third year of marriage to have that first birth. So in a weird way, not only are you not seeing delaying that first birth, so rising ages at, at first birth, but you're seeing a clustering of first births earlier and earlier within marriage among younger age cohorts. And this is something I can go into more. Yeah, Ted. So, so what's happening with the average age of marriage? So the average age of marriage in Turkmenistan has stayed constant. In Kazakhstan, it's gone up just a tiny bit. In Kyrgyzstan, it's gone down a half a year. And in Tajikistan, it's gone down between 1994 and 2018, according to the, minister, 
um, to the um, labor ministry, not quite yet, which also makes me think about marriage is labor, but that's those are the people who can't like the statistics. Um, according to them, that in Tajikistan, the average age of first marriage has gone down um, 18 months in that period, right? And that jives with a lot of the work on migration and, and, and whatnot, but what we're seeing is a concentration of fertility in early ages. Indeed, what we're finding is that women are still having those babies really early. They are stopping childbearing with contraception. So the total fertility is still low. Average completed family size is down. But the timing is not what we think. Typically, in demographic theory, when you increase the use of contraception, you start the second demographic transition, which means you delay marriage because you can have sex without getting pregnant, right? Marriage oftentimes becomes somewhat less important over time, and you have more cohabitation, you have more um, out-of-wedlock births. Women's status and prestige tends to go up. Women's economic attainment tends to go up. Women's education attainment tends to go up. At the end of the day, you're shifting childbearing to the later year, years, and you can shift it too far, and that can be problematic. But in general, people can hit their target fertility, but they're having children older. They're more economically stable. They've been in unions, whether they're marital or not, for a longer period of time. That gives, again, a strong boost to infant survival, as well as maternal health. In Central Asia, we see this cataclysmic fall in reproductive health, or in, uh, rather, in fertility. Some increased positive reproductive health behaviors, according to other groups, but it's concentrated at the beginning of the, um, the, the marital ages. So really quickly, I'm sorry I went so long. Um, I didn't want to bore you with a bunch of tables, but if anybody's interested, I'm happy to, to bore you over email, so write me. Um, regional effects, again, we're back to that unevenness. The difference between Ashgabat and Mur, the difference between Islamabad and Karimabad. In regional effects, capital cities, if you live in a capital city, you are tw between 20 and 40% more likely to know about contraception. Yay, that's good. Um, not if you don't live in a capital city, but it does tell you there's a certain um, regional effect. The intent to use contraceptives after you've had, at parity one, after you've had your first birth, is between 15 and 30% higher in urban areas than it is in rural. So actually, the capital city effect is much more powerful than the non-capital urban effect. Age, this is confounding with marital status, right? And that Ted's question was really good. Um, but early marriage is persisting in general. Okay. <coughs> Ethnic and linguistic groups, no surprise, there is a minority disadvantage, typically, with the exception of Kazakhstan. Ethnic Russians are no less likely to employ contraception, and indeed, in some regions in particular, are more likely to contracept than um, ethnic Kazakhs. But Tajiks in Uzbekistan are less likely to con contracept than the Uzbeks, and oddly enough, than the Tajiks in Tajikistan. And so, gotta get, get back there and do a little bit more work. And in terms of gender 
gender, this is really heavily understudied. So I'm really focusing on women because most of the mix and DHS data focus on women. The later studies, both from uh, mix and DHS, include male subsamples, which I think is fascinating. And they ask questions about reproductive health knowledge, about family size, aspirations, all sorts of great stuff. I have not completed those data, and um, I would argue in the, the literature, it's heavily understudied. But I want to give a shout out to the fact that actually it, men have a role to play in the reproductive process. <laughs> and it would do us all well to do more research on what's going on with men. Because if we think young women are excluded, I think young guys are just told to go on out there and be a good guy, and they get no information whatsoever. But more, more coming on that. So contraceptive revolution is going on in Central Asia, and that's something to be happy about, primarily because infant mortality is also down. Fewer babies mean healthier babies, especially at high fertilities when you're having a TFR of eight you're going to have higher infant mortality. Maternal mortality, surprisingly enough, has declined. Even in Tajikistan, maternal mortality has declined across this period. Fertility is down. Rates of natural increase are down. Child mortality, and this is mortality under the age of 15, but particularly mortality under the age of 5, is actually decreasing. Now, in the Afghan case, there is a blip in 2000 for obvious reasons. But since then, it's been going down. And that's something to really celebrate, I would argue. Again, I'm not arguing causality here, but I'm saying theory tells us these things should be happening, and the picture in Central Asia makes sense. Some of it doesn't. Women's status is supposed to go up with the use of family planning. We're finding some fairly conflicting results here. Reproductive health, in terms of knowledge and access, to contraception, again, not a perfect story fitting with theories. And lastly, women's economic achievement across these seven countries has actually been going in the opposite direction in terms of relative economic achievement relative to men than theory would predict given the contraceptive revolution. And so we have a lot to learn about Central Asia, but we've got more to learn from Central Asia. And I think that looking at these seven countries that have done such an amazing job of starting the demographic transition and rapidly increasing access to contraceptives for women who have already had one child, there's a lot to be done. So for, for those of you who are looking for a topic, this is a great one, there's data available. But um, for the rest of you who are studying all sorts of different issues that are of importance in Central Asia, I think it all, always behooves us to think about issues of population, growth, health, and equity. Thanks for your patience. Appreciate it.